You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Dr. Douglas Young is joining me right now, and his new book is called Due South. And we talked to him about his last book, so we wanted to talk to you about this one. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me, Martha. It is an honor and a joy to be here. I have been listening to talk radio for probably close to 50 years, and I've heard loads of national and local talk radio hosts, and you are... In addition to being so very well informed about the issues and wise, you are the kindest and the fairest of all talk radio hosts I've ever been blessed to hear. And I just think that you are a fine Christian lady and a role model for us all. And I wish that all talk show hosts would treat all their guests as even-handedly and fairly and kindly as you do. Well, so thank, I thank you, you very much. You know, they they don't call me the Velvet Hammer for nothing. I mean, I try <laughs> to be direct about things, but I also try to be fair because, look, there may be a mostly Republican audience for this show, but I now have a podcast which has extended my audience. We have people that call in from all over the country, and you want to be fair to everybody. Sure. And I had a lady at a lunch um, that I went or breakfast that I went to who was going to be who was considering taking a position with the Republican Women's Group in looking at certain issues. And she says, "Martha, where do I get good information?" I mean, that's a big question, right? And so I just told her a few sources that I use, and uh, there's a new one called News Nation that does a really good job. There's also a thing called Ground News where if you get their app, they actually will rank stories on who carries them. So you can kind of see, okay, does this story lean left? Does this story lean right? Can I make my own decisions? Critical thinking. You were a professor for many, many years. And that's what you encouraged with your politically incorrect group and other things like that was, was critical thinking if you just hear what you agree with how are you ever going to be in the world and you're not going to learn anything new my number one goal as a teacher was to try to help students learn how to think more critically uh, analytically independently but always critically to think for themselves it's been said and i think it's true that uh most of us, we're not going to remember more than about 5 or 10% of the information that we get in a class over the long haul. But if the teacher can help the student learn how to think more analytically, more rationally, more independently, more critically, those critical thinking skills uh, will last a lifetime and can enhance the decision-making prowess of the student uh, in every aspect of life. And so I think critical thinking is absolutely uh, the most important goal of education. Yeah, I mean, I've said this for many years about college education. I probably... And college isn't for everyone. I love the fact that here our technical colleges do have that basic core curriculum so that if someone decides after a technical degree they want to go on to college, they don't have to start over again. I think that's – and also I do think there is a base of knowledge that you should have to just be a good citizen 
in the world. Sure. You know, there's a certain level of knowledge that you should have. Yes, this ma'am. idea that you don't need history and English and all this kind of stuff. No, you do because right. you need to be able to have conversations with people and know that there's a basic level of knowledge. If you read Democracy in America, one of the things that de Tocqueville, which this is a book written in the early 1800s. Right, 1835. That's right. And it's it's it talks about you know, the kind of ruffian Americans, but they all had, they may have only had a second grade education, but they had this basic knowledge of how things worked so that they could have conversations with people about it. That was in the early 1800s that he was traveling around America. So Exactly. Do you know my mama, who was born in 1892, and she only had a 10th grade education. That's all the school went up to. Right, But yet she was still an outstanding public school teacher she taught in a one-room schoolhouse and she was fluent in latin her grandson can't speak any latin (laughs) and their grandson has a phd (laughs) well and it's so funny uh and we'll get to the book in a minute but it's so funny my parents were kind of the same way my mother graduated from high school was 11th grade at that point in time Mm. my father did not graduate from high school because Mm -hmm. his dad had a business that was failing in the depression and he got pulled out of school to help save the business and so he was in and out of school very sporadically from the time he was seven until he was about 15 and then he went to work full-time but he was very intelligent and uh, and read a lot and my mother the same way but they knew that they wanted more for us they knew that that they, you know, and they didn't have a lot of money, so they took uh, use of things like field trips to the ballet or field trips to the symphony back when they used to do those because they knew as a family we weren't going to be able to afford to go to those kinds of things. But if I could go for a cut rate with my class and get that exposure, we all did that. That's a great cultural education. It is. It is. And so they knew, you know, it's kind of like when George Bush said, even people who have never been free yearn for freedom there's a place it's even people that aren't educated know that education is the key out right you know if you've ever seen waiting for superman which is this great documentary about charter schools yes and you have these people who are suffering and struggling in in very difficult circumstances but they know that if they can get their kid in education that they're going to have a way out. Exactly. And that's exactly, education and economics is what separates us. It's not all these other false things we put in the way. I agree. My paternal grandfather, who had a 10th grade education, he was born in 1899. He told me, son, be sure and get all the education you can, because that's the one thing they can never take away from you. That's exactly what my father used to say, too. Ah. Exactly. Now, tell (laughs) us about Due South. Oh, it is so much fun. It is a romantic dramedy that takes place in a small southern present-day university town, and the three main characters are all students at the local university uh, looking for love, and they have sort of a romantic triangle going on, and uh, there's also a much larger cast of often quite colorful characters, some eccentric folks uh, in the community, and that's why I titled the book Due South, named for this fictional town, and uh, it has a lot of laughs. It's There's some serious drama as well, a whole lot of in-depth character development, uh, but it's it's fun, light reading. And as enjoyable as my first novel, uh, Deep in the Forest, is, which came out last year, um, 
Due South, I think, is a lot funnier. I also think that it's a more ambitious book in that it has a far larger cast of characters. Um, and whereas Deep in the Forest had one major character, uh, the new book, Due South, has three. Um, the The new book uh, goes into a lot more uh, detail, I think, has more... Uh, uh, depth of character uh, profiled. Um, but uh, both books are a lot of fun, and I'm having a ball uh, promoting Due South now, doing various radio programs and interviews. Uh, I've got book signings coming up. In fact, uh, this Saturday, uh, December the 10th, uh, from noon to 3 at my favorite local restaurant, the Alpha Euro Grill, which has the best Greek food on the planet, as far as I'm concerned, and I include Greece in that. Uh, it's uh, uh, hosting a book signing, and I'll be there, and I'll be signing books uh, not only due south at a 25% discount per book, but I'll also be signing copies of Deep in the Forest for a 33% discount. And I've got a book signing at the world's best miniature golf course, the Oaks, <laughs> on December 17th, my birthday, December 17th from 11 to 2, and that's in Oakwood. And what's wonderful about the Oaks is it's the only putt-putt course I've ever been on where there's not one goofy dinosaur. It's all nature trails. So did you self-publish these books? Uh, there is an independent publisher in Red Bank, New Jersey, the home of the legendary big band uh, maestro and composer Count Basie uh, that uh, really liked uh, my manuscripts and, uh, and agreed to publish. And, and I'm thrilled. That is so exciting. That is really exciting. So what else are you working on? Uh, I am putting together a collection of essays to be put out in book form. Uh, I have been writing uh, essays for various newspapers and magazines and websites for almost 40 years. And so I'm organizing the essays in terms of you know the political stuff, the historical stuff, the cultural stuff, uh, music reviews, uh, film reviews, et cetera, et cetera, personal stuff, memoirs. So that's a, a future book. I've also got a, a a book of poems. Uh, I've got a contract for, uh, to put that out. Um, I would love to write more novels. I'll tell you, as much fun as it is writing uh, essays and memoirs and poems, writing short stories, that's another book I want to come out with at, at some point, a collection of short stories. As much fun as it is writing nonfiction, it is so much more fun writing fiction, whether it's short stories or novels, because the beauty of writing fiction is, with the exception of having to obey basic rules of grammar, punctuation, and spelling, there are no rules. It's like <laughs> your own Nietzschean god getting to create your own universe. And it's just magical. I mean, to just sit at the uh, the keyboard, at the computer, and and just follow your imagination. I mean, it's it's thrilling. So do you have a website where people can find the details of all these book signings? Or uh, is it on Facebook if, or if, something like that? Yes, ma'am. If uh, folks will go to my Facebook page, I'm just listed as Douglas Young. And right now the, uh, the, the cover picture is a picture of the front cover of Due South. 
Uh, that's where I've got all this information posted. And I friend everybody. And I also post a lot of uh, uh, humorous items as well as some political items. We have a lot of good political discussions in the tradition of my classes and the Politically Incorrect Club meetings, uh, in which uh, when I was teaching at uh, UNG Gainesville, we would meet every week and discuss whatever issues were on the students' minds that day. And we were so blessed to have you speak with us three times, I think. That's right. That's right. Douglas Young, thanks for being with us today. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Austin Rhodes is joining me right now. He is a fellow talk show host in Augusta, and uh, I got wind of a little story that's going on over there that I think could have huge impact as we go into the legislative session if it plays out the way we think it's going to. So I wanted to get him to tell us a little bit about it. Austin, thanks for being with us today. Uh, Good morning, Martha. I hope you're having a a good election day so far. (laughs) So far, so good. Look, you know, there's a lot of talk all around Georgia about cities being created or people pulling out of cities and creating their own cities. There's a little bit of discussion like that going on in your area. Tell us about it. It was a formative meeting uh, Sunday, uh, a group of folks getting together very informally to discuss the possibility of forming a new city within the current city limits of Augusta that would actually border Columbia County, which I'll get into why that's important in just a minute. But um, Augusta, of course, is Richmond County. It's a consolidated government, Augusta, Richmond County, much like Athens, Clark County. And this is basically the suburban areas of Augusta that feel like they are paying the freight for the majority of the business that goes on in the city, but they have less and less uh, a political voice because there are far fewer of them in number. Uh, still, the majority of the tax bill is being paid by these districts, and they're not happy with the way that things are going in the city. So what are they proposing? They're just taking a look at the feasibility of breaking off about 43,000 people informing their own government technically it's it's under the auspices of the village of somerville which i think they're probably going to have to rename if it gets down to it because there's already a somerville georgia but that was the name the historic name of one of the primary neighborhoods that's being considered for a breakaway um and again this this has to do mainly with a huge influx of residents on the south side of town that are not paying a lot of property tax. The the overwhelming majority of the property tax revenue for the entire city of Augusta comes from these 43,000 residents that are talking about considering splitting off. So why is it important that this borders Columbia County? Well, one of the primary conflicts we've had in this area is our Augusta judicial circuit, which up until uh, last year was a three-county circuit of Richmond, Columbia, and Burke counties. During the 2020 election, um, a um, Democrat district attorney who is uh, from the George Soros School of um, uh, Public uh, Administration, so to speak, uh, very, very surprisingly won the election very narrowly over our incumbent Republican, very aggressive conservative district attorney, a young lady named Natalie Payne, who was very, very popular with law and order types and law enforcement types. But again, the uh, on the on the wave of the anti-Trump vote, uh, Jared Williams, the Democrat DA, swept in. Well, immediately Columbia County, which is a far more conservative county than either Richmond or Burke County, decided they weren't having that, and they broke away and established their own judicial circuit. Not only would this new city of Augusta be able to break away from the 
majority of the um, uh, lesser taxpayers, but they would also be able to, I believe, uh, you know, and it would have to come with some legislative construction. Don't get me wrong, it wouldn't be automatic. They would be able to apply to Columbia County uh, to perhaps join them and become a different judicial circuit, or at least join the Columbia County Judicial Circuit, so they're able to reestablish themselves as a conservative law and order prosecutorial faction, which, again, would be very, very important to this area. So what really caught my ear when I was listening to you talk about this a few days ago was the impact of Augusta National um, and that where Augusta National would fall into this. Is, are they involved in this discussion? They're not involved in the discussion officially because there are zero votes that come from that property. You have to understand that's a business and as such carries absolutely no residential voice. And we're talking about property taxes, of course. Businesses don't have a vote. They do pay property taxes, but they don't have a vote necessarily. Um, they would be part of the annexed area in, and they really don't have anything to say about it. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're along for the ride. Um, if this annexation or this breakaway, not annexation, went as it's being proposed, the Augusta National would be part of the new city, no doubt. But by the way, keep in mind, this would all still remain within the consolidated government of Augusta, Richmond County. And even though it would be its own individual entity, it would have its own sovereignty, it would still be um, within the city of Augusta and the county of, of, of Augusta, Richmond County, as it speaks. So it's not like they're going to have to change the name of the club or anything. Or even so, the it's, so they'd have to deal with, in this study committee, that, or the study that they're doing, You know how they're going to handle schools, how they're going to handle law enforcement, how they're going to handle all that sort of thing within that area? Yeah, the school system is county-based. It would stay the same. Um, law enforcement is certainly a possibility. The judicial circuit addition is certainly a possibility. Um, there are some other aspects that they can take over, such as uh, planning and zoning and garbage pickup, and they're actually kind of minor services, but th- to fit under the technical uh, requirements of the breakaway legislation, I think you have to provide three of ten public-oriented services, and that would that would put them over the top right there. And then what they'd have to do, obviously, once they do this study, decide what they want to do, if they want to do it, then you've got to do it legislatively under the Gold Dome, right? Correct. And the way that it stands right now, this is largely a conservative movement that's headed by some uh, very prominent conservatives in the area, and I have no doubt that if they dot their I's and cross their T's and accomplish their, the goals on paper, they should have in the very conservative uh, dominated state legislature and of course with Governor Kemp, they would have all the brain power and, and muscle they need at the top to get this through. So it's different than Buckhead City uh, th- that we went through last legislative session. They've, they can approach this in a more positive way. Uh, it, much like Johns Creek, I think. That's actually, yes. in, in my discussions with people that are m- most familiar with all of those processes, the Johns Creek process probably is the one that's closest to what we're seeing being discussed in Augusta. Absolutely. Well, Austin Rhodes, thank you so much for uh, looking at this because we're definitely going to be looking at this going into the legislative session. But I'm always looking for what is the issue that might get out there and create a lot of interest. And I think this one could. But Martha, can I ask you something unrelated real quick since sure. I've got you on the phone? And, you, you know, you're a very rare peer of mine and that you've been doing this decades, literally. <laughs> and when Neil Bortz retired, you and I are pretty much the longest reigning talk show hosts on current events uh, talk radio in the state. And, and you've taken a couple of breaks to do political things. I understand that. But I want to ask you a question. 
in your career, have you ever seen a statewide candidate work as hard, particularly making personal contacts with folks like you and me, than Herschel Walker has? No, I mean, he definitely has done that from the beginning, and he's not dealing with most of the big media, right? He does national media, and he's doing local media, and he's not doing that much in the middle. And I, I'm just saying it's very unusual, and, and it might pay off for him. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. But somebody got in his head early on and said, you know, uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was fine in its day, but if you want to talk to the people of Georgia, you need to talk to Athens, you need to talk to Columbus, you need to talk to Augusta, Macon, and, and Savannah. And I'd be doggone, that looks like his game plan. No, I think you're right about that. And there are lots of uh, challenges, obviously, that Herschel Walker's going to have. He was outspent. He, you know, he had nothing but negative news stories written about him. But he also got out and talked to people. And look, I... I don't know if I buy all this prediction about, oh, well, this is what the early voting did, so this means that Warnock's up 4% or whatever in the early voting. You don't know because you're not voting by party. You can guess based on how the counties have voted already. But what I'm watching really closely is in those counties in North Georgia, in my listening area, where he underperformed Brian Kemp and what the turnouts are like there. Uh, no doubt. And, and to be honest with you, I have had more people telling me that they have reconsidered in a vote, either no vote for Herschel or a vote against Herschel than the other way around since the initial election. And I, I mean, I'm not sure what kind of numbers we're talking about, but I think he is going to perform better today than he did um, a month ago. And, you know, I guess it's one of those things, like you said, we're just going to have to see. But one thing to keep in mind, since 2016, how many times have the headlines and the polls been wrong? They have been, and it's really hard to even look at this one because 10 years ago when I ran for Congress, it was a three-week runoff. Then it was a nine-week runoff. Now this is a four-week runoff, so we don't really have anything to measure it against. And, you know, it'll be, it's going to be a really, really interesting night, but I don't think it's going to be a super late night. I think we're going to know probably by 10 o'clock. Oh, the volume of the early votes. And also, by the way, something that I've been pushing for literally for 10 years is getting early votes counted first. And I am so glad the Secretary of State finally saw things our way and, and helped uh, through the legislature, of course, mandate that those early votes uh, can be counted first. You and I both know it, we, we sat around the last couple of elections, 11 o'clock at night, and all of a sudden they dump half the votes at one time and everything that we had seen up to that point gets blown out of the water now it's not that way now the early votes are going to be posted first and then we can watch the neighborhoods trickle in so we ought to know pretty early like you said absolutely austin Rhodes, thanks for being with me today always an honor martha thank you dear putting the talk in news talk it's the martha zoller show on am 550 and fm 102.9 wdun Henry Olson's joining us right now. He is uh, the conservative columnist at the Washington Post. And I reached out to him because I know he knows everything about everything. And I am trying to understand kind of where we are with the whole Elon Musk, Twitter, Hunter Biden story. And, and what is the where are we right now? Because Corinne Jean-Pierre does not want to talk about it, does she? No, she doesn't. And there's a reason why she doesn't want to talk about it is because what was exposed over the weekend by Elon Musk giving journalist Matt Taibbi access to emails that uh, had been sent back and forth in 2020 is that Democratic activists conspired with progressive uh, executives at Twitter to suppress a legitimately sourced news story, which has now been confirmed by The New York Times as being true. 
so of course she doesn't want to talk about it. It shows the left at its very worst in both its willingness to use power and to limit speech in order to advance their political goals. Because I don't think anybody should be confused that Elon Musk is a conservative. He's not. I think he's a free speech guy. I think he probably has pretty wide boundaries about what is acceptable speech. Um, I, you know, I, I know that Democrats are pushing back quite a bit because they had Twitter kind of all to themselves in a lot of ways. Now I'm on Twitter every day because I think it's a great way to get news stories out. It's a great way to uh, post what I'm doing on the show that day. It's a great way to post audio. And that's basically what I use it for. I don't use it as a news source. I use it as a way to get information out in a fairly quick way. And if you look at it that way, then it can be a great tool uh, to be able to get things out. But there are a lot of people that that's where they get their news from. And they think Twitter's the real world, Henry. And it's really not. No, it's not. And one of the studies have shown over time uh, consistently that the people who use Twitter consistently to read and push political news are not only Democrats, but they're on the left wing of the Democratic Party. So basically what they had thought was, this is our playground. This is our party, and we'll invite who we want. But of course, Twitter is an international entity, and Twitter has protections in the United States by providing that it is not a publisher. It is not somebody who uh, basically acts as a gatekeeper to a private party. And Elon Musk said, I'm going to take that seriously and actually let Twitter live up to its promise. And so these people who wanted to act as bouncers to push conservatives out of their party are upset and uh, and they're crying. But that's too bad. America benefits by what Musk is doing. More speech is better. And, you know, I think it's I think he's going in the right direction. Now, it was funny because a couple of weeks ago, Apple, of course, was in the news because they were going to pull their ads from Twitter and some of their big, big shots deactivated their Twitter accounts. And there was some things going on there. But Elon Musk pushed back and said, yeah, but you're, you know, making stuff in China and you don't say anything about them. Basically, I'm paraphrasing him. And then. Weirdly enough, Tim Cook or Apple announced this week they are really, try- over the weekend, they are trying to move manufacturing out of China. So I think they see the writing on the wall. Absolutely. I wrote a column about that yesterday, that uh, Apple takes a look and they see, you know what, we've got an authoritarian government that uh, doesn't listen to our business needs. And we've got an authoritarian government that is working against the national interests of the country that gave birth to us and that protects us. And Apple uh, is making that decision. And I think Apple is also making prudent decisions with respect to Twitter, that they're not going to kick Twitter off of their app store. They know that Elon Musk has the money and the smarts to fight back, unlike a lot of the people that they believe. That's right. It's funny because I do use Apple. I have an iPhone. I have a Mac. I do love the way they interact with each other. I have an iPad. Okay, so I am a I am an Apple person. The last time I got a new phone, I just ironically, you know, I strike up conversations with people when I'm in public places. And it happened to be a woman who headed up customer service for Apple in the Southeast. And that's who was sitting across the table from me. And so we struck up a conversation and I, I said to him, okay, here we are at the end of a pandemic 
And this store is full of people who are more than willing to pay $1,000 for a phone. Okay? I mean, they were flying out of the store, whether it was the phone, the iPad, the watches, whatever. Plenty of, plenty of high-dollar stuff was leaving that store legitimately on that day. I said, I think people, if the argument is you got to make it in China because it's cheap, I think people would pay a little more to know that it's being made in a place that's a little more free. Yeah, and the other thing is Apple's profit margin on an iPhone is unbelievable. You know, I, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but it was like 40% the last time I looked at it. Do you think maybe their shareholders would be satisfied with 30% but a guaranteed supply and less political pressure? I'll bet <laughs> Apple's shareholders would be satisfied with that. So I'm saying is the consumer doesn't have to pay more. That's right. There's a lot of money that Apple can cut out of their profit margins, and I'll bet the shareholders will be satisfied with a lower but steadier rate of return. So getting back to Twitter for a minute, do you think that Apple kind of tried to flex its muscles by saying they'll take them off the App Store because they were so successful at crushing Parler by doing that? And so, But Parler didn't have anything behind it. And, and to your point, Elon Musk could have fought back. Yeah, well, you know, Parler had other issues, you know, which is to say that they weren't as well run a business, and they also had content moderation issues far beyond the sort of questions that are arising on Twitter. Um, but Elon Musk, this guy is unbelievable. I mean, when you think about it, this is a guy who has formed Tesla. This is a guy who's formed SpaceX. This is a guy who is a serial entrepreneur, and everything he touches seems to turn to gold. And now he's in charge of Twitter, and you don't get to be the richest man in the world by chance. You get to be the richest man in the world by being smart and dedicated and being willing to fight. And I think Tim Cook looked across the table, or judging from the pictures, across the pond at the Cupertino headquarters and said, I've met my match. This isn't worth it to me. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because you know how we love our SEC football. You know, we were very disappointed. In really? Tim you guys love SEC yes, football? Yes, we do. And we were very disappointed in Tim Cook last week because he's from Auburn, which is also an SEC team, and he should know better. Even though he's been living in uh, Cupertino for however long, um, he actually went to Auburn. So he should know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> So we're having a blast here down in Georgia because our team, the University of Georgia, won the SEC championship last week, which they did not win last year. And now our quarterback is going to New York for the Heisman. And he's probably the oldest quarterback in history to be nominated because this guy has been all over the place. If you read his story, Stetson Bennett, he was the player nobody wanted. He just wouldn't give up. He went to junior college. He went to the, he did a walk-on. I mean, he just did all the kind of hunker-down things that you wish that people would do in their lives. He just would not give up. And also, he had COVID in there where all these players are getting an extra year of, avail of eligibility because of that. And so he figures, I'm not big enough to be an NFL quarterback, so I'm going to play another year. So he's played six years in college football, and he's loved every minute of it. Well, I hope he gets the Heisman, and then I hope he's smart enough that he turns around and signs a book agent and immediately tells his story and sells it to Hollywood. It would be a great a story, wouldn't it? Absolutely. The guy who came from nowhere. To be uh, to, to be the best uh, quarterback uh, or you know, the best player in college football, and if you're a Heisman winner, you're going to go in the first round. So it's you know 
a guaranteed market, guaranteed moneymaker, and what a wonderful life story. It is a great story. And the, the fact he just wouldn't give up and he was this regular guy. I mean, he's the he's not the biggest. He's not Joe Burrows, who is like a quarterback savant, or Tom Brady, who's a quarterback savant. He's just a guy that they call him the mailman. He delivers. That's that's what his nickname is. So it is, it's a lot of fun. It was so funny. He said this thing after the game. He goes, well, I play pretty good football. <laughs> I was just like, but he also has not only finished his undergrad, but he's finished his graduate degree in the six years that he's been playing football. So he's not going to be one of those guys that leaves college and didn't graduate. So I'm, I'm happy about that too. Yeah. Well, that's, that really speaks well for him. And who knows, you know, Tom Brady may be a quarterback savant, but he uh, was a sixth round draft choice and kind of a scrawny kid who willed his way to being the best quarterback in history. It's a similar uh, story. Yep. Maybe uh, Bill Belichick in New England says, hey, I got my next Brady right here. What's oh, the draft? that would be great. Henry Olson from the Washington Post, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on, Martha. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.